And we are live with our 12th recorded version of Sports Cafe. I'm Mike Mandel, your host, with Mike Weil from Chicago, Ian Gus from the Big Apple, and Adam Rosen, usually from the Big Apple, right now in Cape Cod. So, Mike, how are you doing tonight? Doing well. Just hoping the White Sox can win the rubber match tonight against the Minnesota Twins. Nice to be in first. And last week when we had our show that was not recorded unfortunately lucas giolito was in the process of throwing a no hitter so that was awesome to see so as the white Sox go i go so i'm pretty happy right now you guys tend to have a lot of no hitters it seems i think it was like the 19th or so in in history it was the first since philip umber's perfect game which will become a trivia question in like 50 years (laughs) but um or maybe it's a trivia question now who knows but at least Philip Umber has some sort of history. Yeah, absolutely. And Adam, how are things up at the Cape? Doing well. I'm on vacation this week, so enjoying the sports uh, overload that there is right now. A lot of great games going on, so excited to talk about them tonight. Yeah, and Ian, how are things in the Big Apple? Things are going pretty well uh, from a sports standpoint. Maybe not as much uh, with the Yankees, but uh, definitely excited to have all the games on. U.S. Open started yesterday, so uh, tennis back in action, which has been weird to see without fans as well. But uh, excited to to jump into everything. And uh, fingers crossed that our show does record and we're able to get this out to the public this week. Well, we tested and... For, for the listeners, we are going to test before every single podcast so that this doesn't happen again. <laughs> um, that said, uh, let, let's get right into it. And we're going to start with a sport in which all four of our teams are currently competing. It's the only sport with that, and uh, that happens to be baseball. And we'll start out with our home team check-in. And I'll, I'll allow uh, Mr. Gus to go first here as uh, his team had pretty close to a brawl. It, it didn't end up happening, but the bench is cleared. Um after a rough game with the Rays. So, Ian, I'll let you take it away. Well, I'll talk generally about the Yankees, then we can discuss the incident from last night. Um, I think, you know, where we were last week, the Yankees are in a similar position. I think Judge came back for, for less than a full game. Now he's back on the IL. They're saying double the uh, length of the first injury. Uh, so it's, it's just a comedy of, of errors from a health standpoint. Uh, I guess Glaber Torres is supposed to be back this weekend, um, although he hasn't exactly been lighting it up this year. So we will see. Um, I think the pitching, obviously Garrett Cole has had a couple of bad starts in a row. His ERA, I believe, is over four, which is pretty surprising to see. Um, There was some discussion. Maybe he was tipping pitches in his most recent start. So uh, lots of kind of not great stuff going on with the Yankees. And then I think the the biggest headline that made, made the news, you know, across all of baseball was the almost brawl last night after Chapman almost hit, uh, uh, one of the, the rays. And I, you know, there's been a kind of an ongoing history amongst these teams over the last few years. I know CC Sabathia got into it a bit with the rays. It might've been two seasons ago. 
Um, and obviously the Rays and Yankees on the field have have been really, you know, one and two for the most part in the division. Um, so Tanaka last night did hit Wendell early on. Um, and I believe it was in the back or, or not anywhere dangerous. Um, and then the game was kind of moving along, you know, regularly. And then in the ninth inning, Chapman decided or... You know, we can debate whether or not he did it on purpose. I think most people think he did for 101 mile an hour fastball at the guy's head. Um, that resulted in warnings on both sides, struck him out. And I guess he gave a little bit of a stare down, although Chapman always kind of does a stare down after the win. And then I guess the Rays bench didn't like it. And they started, um, you know, kind of barking at the Yankees. And there was uh, kind of a little bit of back and forth, no actual brawls, no pushing and shoving. But it was definitely a fiery end to the game. And then I think what made it even more interesting was Kevin Cash, the manager of the Rays, uh, his comments after the game, basically blaming the Yankees organization, um, their coaching methods. Uh, and and really, there's no way around saying that he threatened the Yankees, saying that he has a staff of guys who can throw 98 miles an hour as well. Um, also admitting to hitting, I don't know the exact situation, but hitting the Yankees on purpose three years ago, which seemed to me like old news i don't know why he was bringing that up but um you know in a sense that was instigating i i felt i think the chapman pitch was definitely out of line i think what made it even worse for me is he didn't make himself available after the game so you know if he didn't do it on purpose you'd probably stand there and and apologize profusely um but instead he kind of you know just decided not to talk and then i guess today he made a comment after he was suspended for three games saying he felt it was I, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but he felt it was a little a little uh, heavy or something that he basically wasn't disputing a suspension, but he thought three games was too much, um, which to me kind of admitted the guilt level. Um, I know there's been some pro-Yankee folks on Twitter showing, you know, the graphs of Chapman's fastball this year, and he doesn't have the best control, but it did, definitely seemed at least somewhat on purpose. Um, but, but I think my other point, and I know we're going to have a little discussion about this is I thought Cash's comments were, were super out of line as well, um, to really blame this on the whole Yankee organization. I'm not sure, you know, this was kind of a one-off thing. I know Chapman is obviously has a history of well beyond the baseball field, different instances and issues with domestic violence and things like that. So I thought it was a bit unfair to blame the entire organization and also to kind of threaten the team. Um, and then, or to threaten the Yankees for retaliating with their, you know, hard flamethrowers. And then, uh, him and, uh, and Boone got the same one game suspension, which, you know, that's something that is kind of interesting just in that remark. So overall, I am obviously not in favor of headhunting in any way. Chapman was wrong, but, um, I think the, the reaction from cash, uh, was interesting as well. Yeah, Absolutely. It certainly seemed like it was unhinged, to say the least. It's not very often you hear somebody physically threaten an entire team. Um, so I, I, I actually I didn't have a problem with Cash's comments. I, I'm not talking about the the blaming the AK organization, but his comment about um, I, you know we have a stable of pitchers who throw 98. I mean, this is kind of the way that baseball has been played as far as. Um, protecting your players i don't think i i think people are too quick to say oh you know he, he's threatening us I, I think it's kind of a instant reaction kind of deal everyone's heat of the moment very angry and and frustrated but i think we, we should really be focusing more on the actions of chapman than than 
the, the reaction by, by Tampa, in particular their manager, Kevin Cash. Chapman is one of the hardest throwers in baseball. I think to me, if there was a, a, major, league pitcher, a major league pitcher who I would least want to face in the batter's box, it would probably be Chapman, A, because of how hard he throws, and B, um, you know, how he can be erratic at times. But uh, it, it sounds like the, the general consensus, no one is disputing that it was unintentional. So the fact is he threw a close to 100-mile-per-hour fastball at a guy's head. Um, and I, first of all, I, I think it's amazing how, how this guy was able to, to dodge the pitch. I mean, a, a pitch coming that, that quickly. But I think it's interesting to compare it to the way Joe Kelly was treated. I think Kelly was suspended eight games versus Chapman only getting three games. And to me, uh, I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around that because Kelly uh, wasn't, didn't Kelly throw like a breaking ball that, that hit one of the batters. And so to me, I don't know, a lot doesn't add up here. Um, But I think rather than focusing on Tampa's reaction, which was very angry as they should be, I think we have to focus on the pitcher who is acting completely um, without regard for uh, safety of the, the players in the box, and we need to figure out how we can get this out of the game moving forward. Well, absolutely, he should be penalized. Now, I, I think the reason that he ultimately wasn't penalized as much as Kelly is that he missed the player. Not, not that that should be a good reason, but I think that's why you saw such a big difference in the number of games. Um but I, Kelly I, I, Kelly was ejected for th- Kelly was ejected for throwing behind a guy. I think I think he hit two batters. The the second guy I think he threw behind the batter, so he did not actually hit the guy. But to me, the main issue, like you're bringing up, Adam, is there's no consistency. There's yeah. no. I mean, it right. should be a public facing document of if this happens, it's one game. This two game, three. There's it's just haphazard. I mean, I guess they're going off of previous standards, but to your point, if you're going off the Kelly standard, it definitely feels light. But guys, here, here's the thing. If there's not going to be a written rule uh, preventing pitchers or, or, or um, disincentivizing them from, from throwing at players, the only way to police it is on the field, and that would mean retaliating or charging yeah, you, the mound. I don't think you go about... Doing- announcing that i mean even from your own perspective what's the point of doing that no i think i think think what you would have to say is look throwing at a guy's head is under no circumstances acceptable in major league baseball if you throw at a guy's head and it is deemed intentional you're suspended x number of games that has to be a rule because right now it's completely unclear and if i'm chapman you know three games is is not a big deal for what he did. I mean, if well, he had he's hit the guy, it. if he had hit the guy in the head, I mean, he could have killed. I, I, I'm not one for hyperbole, but he could have killed the guy. No, he really, and he really could have killed him. When you, it's throw, not hyperbole. Yeah, when you throw so hard, as hard as a guy like Chapman does, it is so dangerous if you're a hitter in the box. And three games just seems like a slap on the wrist compared to what Joe Kelly got. Adam, I agree with you in the sense that. You have to either make a hard and fast rule saying if you throw at someone, a series is not enough. A series is nothing. He should be suspended. In my opinion, you should get at least 10 games for throwing at someone's head because this is the, the reason. The reason is, is that in the 70s, 80s, and even to an extent the 90s, you were able to have the players police themselves. And especially in the National League, when pitchers were hitting, there's a great Tom Seaver story, which I'll get to when... We talk about him, but pitchers, if they hit someone, they expected to get hit in the next at bat. Or 
or a player on the other team, usually a star player, would pay the price in the American League for someone hitting a guy on on the other team. So now you're legislating that out of the game because you immediately have a quick warning for any time this happens. And it sort of sends this message where a pitcher can get away with it. Like, what's to stop Chapman yep. from doing this again? Because he's well, I, he has a, a history. Repeat offender, though. Well, yeah. I know, but if you're not going to suspend him now, even though he's a repeat offender, I mean, he has a history, not the best history in terms of his personal life, and he also is a hothead on the field. So this is not... The fact that Joe Kelly got eight games, and you know where I stand on the Astros, but the fact that he got eight games for throwing behind someone, and this was clearly... In a 101-mile-an-hour fastball, up and in, basically at the guy's head, Adam was right. It wasn't hyperbole. He could have killed him. So you either have to say the players have to police themselves and it's okay to throw at someone and the umpire should not give a quick warning, or you have minimum 10-game suspension or like a fifth of the season, something subst- because 10 games... In this season's 10 of 60, I say you do it analogously in a 162-game season. You make it so that you deter players from putting other players in jeopardy. Because if you're not going to let them police themselves, this is going to get out of hand. And I think I, I'm, I'm not one for... Okay, Mike. I was just going to say, I think where he, he threw it is what matters. The fact that it was a headshot in, instead of somewhere else. That's why it should have been a lot more severe than it was. And as he had mentioned, the fact that he's a repeat offender. You know, I think the players can police themselves to an extent if you're just throwing like it you know it, somebody's torso or even at their they don't usually throw out the legs but you know somewhere that's not life-threatening but throwing at the head i mean that is a potential deadly weapon and that, that that's where i think the bigger suspension should kick in whether you hit him or not yeah i i'm not one for for engaging in in beanball wars but at the same time major league baseball is telling you that what Chapman did is okay because three games is not enough of a deterrent to prevent this from happening in the future. So if baseball is telling you that this kind of behavior is okay, I have a hard time telling teams that they can't retaliate and throw at guys. Not not at the head, not at the head, but to throw at a team's best player. You hit him in the back, hit him, you know, hit him on the butt. But baseball is, yeah, I mean, there's really no other way to put it. Baseball is telling you that they don't have a problem with what Chapman did because three games is just not enough. It's not enough. Well, and they should explain why he got three and Kelly got eight. Because yes. when I heard eight for Kelly, you know, to Mike's point, this is a shortened season. So eight games in a regular, you know, 162, I understand. But, um, you know, if he got five, Chapman, maybe she got the same. I don't know. It, sh- it really shouldn't be a debate. It should be some a policy that you can kind of check off. Did you do this, this, and this? Each one of those is a game. Here's what the suspension is. But for whatever reason, they don't do that. Mike, just my last comment on it. I know we keep calling him a repeat offender. I know he's got domestic violence. He was suspended for that. I don't think he's been suspended for beating guys. I don't think he's had on-field suspensions. I was trying to confirm. So he may, that may be a first-time offender. I don't know how they look at it from on-the-field standpoint. But that was something that I wanted to mention. And by the way, I think one of the best parts of this story, really the, the best way to get revenge. So this guy who was thrown at Michael Brousseau, I think is his name. I had never heard of him until yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I found out he was he's sitting cleanup today for the Rays. He's got two homers and five RBIs tonight, including a, a two run homer in the first inning. So talk about wanting to get your ultimate revenge. That's that's the way you do it right there. Good for him. Good, yeah. Good for him in that case. 
And I think this tonight is the last time the Yankees and Rays play this year. Um, so, right, other uh, than the playoffs. Maybe in the playoffs is a possibility. But if you do something in the playoffs like this, it's even more stupid. So we will see. But um, definitely made uh, you know the Yankees and last night's game a little more interesting. And I know we spent some time on that. So move on. I don't know, Mike Weil, maybe you, you want to cover off on the White Sox? Yeah, I would I love turn to, to Mike. if yeah. you guys are all right with, with my one-minute White Sox rant. Um, so since we were last recorded, and since the good people that listen to this podcast have been able to hear us, the White Sox have gone around 14-5, and 14-4 and four actually, I think, because they were 10-11 and 11 going into the Cardinal series, which was the last time that we spoke, and uh, now they're in first place at... 23 and 14 or 22 and 14 so it's been a great couple weeks jose abreu won al player of the month luis robert won al rookie of the month lucas giolito threw a no hitter and the white Sox beat the cubs in a series in which jose abreu had six home runs and hit four straight home runs back to back to back in consecutive at bats which was tying a major league record so we started off a little slow. The young players took a little bit to gel, but this lineup between Robert Jimenez, Mancada has been hurt, so he hasn't been doing much, but Abreu's been putting up MVP numbers, Grandal, McCann, uh, you could go on and on, and they're dangerous. And Tim Anderson, who won the batting title last year, he was projected to regress. He's even doing better this year. He's hitting 340 right now, and it looks like it wasn't a fluke last year. So between uh i think the starters have the fifth best era in baseball the lineup has the best uh wind runs created plus best war um they're they're clicking on all cylinders so as a baseball fan who hasn't had much to cheer about since 2008 when we made the playoffs last uh i'm i'm ecstatic and in terms of the shortened season to me i don't know about you guys but it I've been following the games a lot more closely because each one is more important. And when your team's in a pennant race, which more teams are, it almost makes it easier to just jump right in. It's like you're getting, if we're talking about baseball as like a cake, you're getting basically the frosting, the pennant race uh, right away. So I'm loving the shortened season. And I'm hopeful that given the fact that we haven't seen the COVID outbreak, the A's are dealing with it a little bit. Uh, I think we're going to see playoffs and we're going to see a champion crown. So, Mike, the White Sox are doing great. And that was that was my White Sox two-minute rant. And I don't mind that at all. I have no beef with the White Sox whatsoever. <laughs> and Adam, I'll, uh, it, it, you know, as long as you beat as many NL Central teams as possible, in fact, it's better for us. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on that. Adam, I'll turn to you. Um, you've got the Mets, who I guess have been producing mixed results this year, but it seems like they're very much still in it. Yeah, I'll, I'll give my quick Mets rant as well. So the Mets, they may be bad, but they're never boring, Mike. Um, <laughs> I mean, where to begin? They they played uh, five games against the Yankees in a span of three days, so I'm sure Ian has a much different perspective on that. So things started off on cloud nine. They, they swept the doubleheader. Uh, this was, of course, on the same day it was announced that Billionaire Steve Cohen uh, is an exclusive negotiation to buy the team, which if they can seal the deal would obviously be amazing news for the Mets and, and would be very promising for their prospects moving forward as far as uh, you know just having new ownership in place and being able to sign free agents. But So the Mets swept a doubleheader. Uh, the first game they were down 4 nothing. 
They came back uh, in dramatic fashion uh, to win 6-4. Game two, they also trailed late. Uh, Ahmed Rosario hits a walk-off home run at Yankee Stadium, which was pretty cool and surreal. Uh, Just one of the the wacky nuances of this 2020 season. Uh, And then from there, it was a disaster. Uh, The Mets... Proceeded to lose the next three games uh, to the Yanks. They they blew two games late, uh, one of which they had a five-run lead late in the game. Uh, just a, a, a wacky weekend overall. I mean, there was two seven-inning games, two eight-inning games. Uh, so the Mets end up losing three out of five when at one point it, it really looked like they were going to win four out of five. Uh, so that spirals into a five-game losing streak. Uh, they lose a game to the Marlins. They lost to Baltimore yesterday. Uh, so they are now uh, five games under 500, which normally would be complete panic mode, but they're actually, I think, three games out of a playoff spot. So even for someone like me, this expanded playoff format should really, it should get me excited about it. You know, I'm of the impression of, look, I mean, the Mets don't deserve to make the playoffs. I mean, you're, you're five games under 500. You've lost to a bunch of lousy teams. It's like the um, eighth seed in the NBA. Eastern yeah. Conference. I mean, look, yeah. I mean, look, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll root for them. I hope they win, but, um, you know, it doesn't, it, something doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like you belong. So, I mean, there's still 25 games left. There's time to turn it around. I'd like to see them at least get to 500. If you're going to make the playoffs to feel like there's a, a sense of legitimacy to it, but just a, Another wacky week um, in in Mets baseball land and hopefully a sign of things to come. But look, I would gladly punt the season if it if I was guaranteed that Steve Cohen would become the owner. So uh, we'll see what happens with that. Well, and A-Rod and J-Lo are officially out, right? Yes. It, it'll happen <laughs> unless the unless the Wilpons for some reason back out and decide they're keeping the team. Uh, it sounds like this this sale is going to happen, which will be and we could talk about this another time, but this would probably be, no exaggeration, a top five moment in my life as a Mets fan. That's really saying something. Let that, yeah, let that sink <laughs> in. So I'll give my uh, my quick recap on the Phillies, and if, if there's any benefit to the uh, technical difficulties of last week, if the, the Phillies have been on a tear since then. At the time, I'd, I'd lamented how, uh, you know, it seemed like they just weren't going to meet expectations, that they probably shouldn't do much more at the trade deadline because the season wasn't going right. But they've been on a tear. They've been 6-1 and one, um, since last Tuesday when we had our aborted podcast. And the, uh, the extra arms in the bullpen seem to have made all the difference. And we'll, we'll talk about some of that pretty soon. But, um, you know, adding uh, both Brandon Workman and Heath Hembree um, before that discussion, uh, about a week before the trade deadline, um, it, it seems like it was a big boost to them. You know, I, I thought that they were, you know, bigger problems than only their bullpen. I mean, their bullpen was... I'd say most notable, but I still didn't think the players were gelling the, the way that I would have expected. But you know, maybe that's all they needed. Maybe you know, with the the juiced up bullpen, um, they have all the confidence they need because the I mean, the batters have been hot. Um, you know, Harper still is looking like he he's playing for the huge contract that we gave him, and even the starting pitching is uh, mostly settling down here. Um, Nola pitched a gem last night, which was pretty exciting to see. I think they should have let him go nine games, but I know they don't do that anymore. Nine um, innings. Nine innings, yeah, nine innings. So that brings us to our next topic, the uh, the trade deadline, which uh, marks about the halfway point in the season, maybe a little bit more. Um, you know, among many weird parts of the season, the, the trade deadline being you know thirty to thirty one games in, um, there's no exception. Uh, but but it's also you know pretty close to crunch time for the playoffs. So. 
Um, I'll go around to each of you, and Adam, I'm going to start with you because I know you've been, uh, you know, analyzing each of the trades, uh, trade by trade, as, as recently as a few hours ago. So uh, let, let, let's see what you've got to say. Well, I, I don't know if I've been analyzing all of them. I did. Uh, I did outline a list of the key trades in our uh, in our pre-show outline. But sure, I can I can start. Um, I, I think the, the the big one is obviously the the, the Padres, and they're going all in on this playoff push which i think is great for them they've they're i think the second longest postseason drought so they traded for mike clevenger who will now be the ace of their rotation uh they also made a couple other smaller deals they have trevor rosenthal for the back end of the bullpen uh austin nola who of course is aaron nola's younger brother or older brother actually who's who he's older brother but he's he's newer to um to the big leagues i think he's only been around for a couple years uh i know this because i covered him in the Cape Cod baseball back in 2010. So when I, when I heard he had made his major league debut a couple of years ago, it was pretty surprising. So if you're a Padres fan, you have to be excited about it. I think the move I wanted to talk about, which was a little perplexing to me was the Marlins uh, trading. So they traded for Starling Marte, but they traded away. So kind of a, half buy half sell mode um marte i think is only under, under contract for one more year and i don't think they gave up a lot to get him so it was mostly just taking on salary but i thought that was kind of interesting we haven't really ever talked about the marlins being buyers uh in the last decade or so so i think it's you know if you're a marlins fan and i can say with near certainty that we don't have any marlins fan listeners to the podcast but if you are a marlins fan uh, Maybe you have to be Jeter fans. I don't know. <laughs> uh, Avi's going to listen to this one, and he is a Miami guy, so he, he's you a have to be, fan. <laughs> Yeah. So Marte, look, Marte's a you know he's he's a he's a great talent. Um, he had the PED suspension a few years ago, but um, I still I don't think that's enough to put the Marlins in the playoffs. I still see them uh, coming back down to earth as they kind of have in the past few weeks. But uh, you know, nice to see uh, a team that. Typically, doesn't take on payroll. Um, trade for a player of Marte's caliber. Um, I have some insight into the the Marlins trade because I was watching MLB Network, waiting for the White Sox to trade for Lance Lynn, which I'm kind of happy they didn't because the the rumors were that they had to give up Michael Kopech or an elite prospect. But for a change, I won't make it about the White Sox. So the Marlins, um, they have Jazz Chisholm, who's a second baseman, and he's their top prospect. And he was slated to take VR's spot coming up. So they had a uh, option to trade him. And sure enough, the day after the trade line, they the trade deadline, they brought up Chisholm. And they've been underratedly just developing starting pitchers. They traded Zach Gallen last year to the Diamondbacks. They traded um, another young starter, Caleb Smith, in, yeah. in this deal. So they're really dealing from a position of strength. I like what the Marlins did because they're not going to win a championship this year, but I think Marte gives them a solid veteran presence to mentor the young outfielders and young players in that clubhouse. And watch out for the Marlins next year. I'm making an early call on them. I like their rotation a lot, and underratedly, they just brought up Sixto Sanchez, who is their best pitching prospect. Let's be clear here. You're making the call on the Marlins for next year. I'm not saying they're they're going to win the division. (laughs) Yeah, I'd I'd like to get that on the record if that's your prediction. You you can. (laughs) You can. And you can can call up freezing cold takes on Twitter to, to let them know a year in advance. But 
I think that they're going to compete next year. I don't know if they'll make the playoffs. I don't want to get that bold, but I like their young rotation, and I they have some good young hitters too. So watch out for the Marlins, Avi. Uh, I think I think you you got you got something to cheer for in the future. Yeah, he's definitely hoping so. Although he's got the heat going yeah, on right left, now. I've, <laughs> I see. I've left you all speechless. Um, yeah. No. <laughs> no I, I, I was going to weigh in, and before I, I know, yeah, we're just keeping track of the Heat. Just had a literally a walk-off free throw victory in Game Two, which I don't know if I've ever seen that. There was no time left on the clock, so they are now up two zero on the Bucks. Do they call um, which? Do they call the Butler shot a foul? I they did. So we can we can talk more about that, about that, uh, that. Uh, in a little bit later. But in terms of the trade deadline, I I have to agree. I mean, I I can't remember the last time I've seen the Marlins buy at the trade deadline. So that was pretty interesting. And and given one of the topics we discussed last week of some of the early hot teams, who's most likely to, you know, stay in contention, I did go with the Marlins. So I'll. Uh, Maybe jump on that bandwagon with with Mike Weil. I don't know. I, I'm not ready to predict their 2021 outlook yet, but uh, yeah, they do have some exciting young players, and and nice to see them bring in that veteran presence. Um, you know, I think what's interesting there's a lot. First of all, a lot of trades. I think when we were looking at the deadline, we thought maybe teams would kind of hold on to players, and and everyone's kind of in it this year, so there wouldn't be as much buying and selling, but. A lot of aggressive teams, obviously the Padres being the number one aggressive team, but it's also interesting to see some of the teams that didn't do anything. Teams like the Yankees, teams like, I don't think the Dodgers did much either. Um, the Do- the so Dodgers the- actually traded away um, Ross Stripling. They sold, the right? Yep. Yeah, so it's interesting that some of the, you know, kind of predicted World Series teams, for whatever reason, decided not to make additions at the trade deadline, while some of the you know, more teams in the middle fighting for playoff spots did. I think uh, I'm curious, Adam, what you thought of the Mets trades. To me, they seem kind of <laughs> random, and <laughs> I don't know how much they yeah. help. Um, but yeah. it, you know, they made a flurry of moves at the end of the deadline. Yeah, you, well, yeah, that's actually a great point that you raised, and I, I I'm actually not surprised by that because, you know, teams like yeah, the Yankees, the Dodgers, the Astros are are pretty well run organizations, and I think a lot of them are realizing that look, this is a this is a short season. This is uh, in my opinion, where it makes sense to go all in and then trade major assets for players. And I think that these really good franchises who are, who are perennial contenders have realized that. I think they'd all like to win this year, but I think giving up a a stud prospect uh, for a playoff push this year when your team could be eliminated in a three-game series probably isn't the smartest move. And I think the reason why you're seeing some of these unusual teams like the Padres and the Blue Jays and the Marlins and and the Reds kind of acquiring guys uh, for the playoff push this year is because they generally don't get the chance to have a playoff run. And so with the expanded format, they're they're in a situation where, look, we have a chance if we get in, and so we're going to you know take advantage of it. Adam, as far as those... Oh, sorry, I'm just going to address the second. As far as those, those Mets trades, the Mets would qualify as one of those teams that are not very well run, which is why they made a number of trades that were were head scratchers. Uh, I know Ian had sent a text to our our group chat that about just Todd Frazier exclamation point, and my initial reaction was, oh, I, I guess the Yankees are bringing him back. They've had all these injuries, and then I hear that the Mets traded for him, and it's it's pretty hard to believe. Um, I, I don't think that they gave up much for for Frazier or Robinson Chirinos, who I, don't, I have no idea why they traded for a 37-year-old backup catcher. Uh, they did give up a prospect to get this guy, Miguel Castro, from the Orioles, which 
uh, a starting pitcher prospect, which I I don't get it. And look, I'm not married to prospects. I think the Mets have traded away way too many starting pitching prospects in the last two years in an effort to make the postseason, which it looks like they'll be 0 for 2 in, in Brody Van Wagenen's tenure. But yeah, look, I... I was of the standpoint, if you can bring in an arm who can help the team without giving up any sort of big-time prospect or any anyone with any kind of cachet to his name, I'd say yes. But it sounds like they gave up a guy who has a little bit of value. I think he was the number 12 prospect. And to me, uh, in a season where uh, you're, 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 they were, I think they were six games under 500 at the time the trade was made, just doesn't make sense to me. Adam, what I was going to say is I think you hit it on the head with the shortened first round because it's such a crapshoot this year when you have a three-game series. Any team that loses two in a row, they're out. So yep. why mortgage the future when it's so unpredictable this year? And I think next year we'll see more of a normal playoff format. As far as the Mets, I think Brody Van Wagenen sort of making his last stand. They're going to have a new ownership group. I hope for your sake it's, it's Cone and you'll have a lot of money to spend and a much better owner than the Wilpons. But Van Wagner knows he might be done after this year, so why not go for it? You're going to sell the team, try to get Are some Are those veterans. moves really going? Yeah. They're, Is Tom Frazier going for it? Well, I, going for what? You know, Hitting the quota of stability? I don't know. <laughs> you're, you're able to... The Mets aren't far out of a playoff spot. It's not going for a World Series, obviously, but given that there's eight teams making the playoffs, and currently I think it's the Giants and the Marlins are seven and eight, you could make the argument the Mets going into the season had more talent, and now for sure I think they have more veteran talent. So I'm not thinking that they're going to win the World Series or anything, but I understand why Van Wagner did it if it's his last year. And as far as winners at the deadline the Padres did great people were saying the Indians got a lot which they did but the Padres didn't give up a top five prospect and got Mike Clevenger who for a lot of teams would be an ace and he slots in at the top of their rotation and you also get Austin Nola who can hit he's older he's 30 but he's a catcher that can hit and between Hedges and Mejia who are the Padres former duo they're going to get a lot more offensive production out of Nola and Jason Castro, who they also traded for. Mitch Moreland's a great guy off the bench or, you know, a DH in some situations. And Trevor Rosenthal helps the back of their bullpen. I think far and away, the Padres won the deadline because they were in a strong position and they filled basically all their needs. So Padres, uh, Padres might give the Dodgers a run for their money. Yeah, and just to circle back on one of the things that Adam said about you know maybe the more successful or teams that are in it every year not going super uh, hard at the trade deadline. I know one thing Brian Cashman, the GM of the Yankees, said was 30 minutes before the trade deadline, he thought he was going to have three deals, and he ended up with none. So I don't know if that's a case of other teams backing out, last-minute you know changes in, in the asking prices. So I don't think it was necessarily a... You know, going into it, we're just not going to make trades. I think maybe they were just a little more strategic with not overpaying for you know those half a season rentals and giving up whatever top prospects they have left. So, so I'll make a couple of points that you guys haven't yet made. Um, obviously, with the Padres, I mean they're on fire. They're they're clearly going all in. But um, another team that did a decent amount of buying, somewhat surprisingly, was the Blue Jays. And, and, and granted, with both. Ross Stripling and, and Robbie Ray, I, I'd say they they bought low. Um, I think they're expecting 
that they'll at least be better than their recent numbers have shown. Um, and then, you know, Jonathan uh, VR is utility man, but I, I, I guess I'm a little bit, in, I don't know if I want to say I'm encouraged, but the fact that they think that they can compete with both the, uh, the Rays and the Yankees in what may well be baseball's toughest division and almost certainly their t- toughest top two in a division. Um, it, it, you know, it's somewhat surprising. It seems like they're going for it this season. Um, and also you have uh, Mike Wiles' beloved Cubs, and I'll give you a chance to respond here, but um, they're still on top, and, and and they're buying as well. Um, not that they're terrific, but... They're um, lucky they're in the NL Central. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. If they weren't in the NL Central, <laughs> they would not be leading a division. They're not that good. I'm maintaining this. No, I, I, I think that's accurate. I mean, the, the, the fact that they're in a division with a bunch of sub-500 teams, uh, I, I think, <laughs> benefits them a lot. Um you guys will get to beat up on them in the playoffs if need be. Um, but the the other thing is, you look at the NL East, I think a lot of us, we, we, we were half right in the beginning of the season. We, we had said that they were going to, it was basically a free-for-all uh, because four out of the five teams are going to be competing. The, the part where we were wrong is that the fifth team, instead of being the Marlins, is the world champion Nationals. Um, they're, they're, they're the ones who are sort of separated from the pack right now. They They clearly did not buy um i don't know how much they sold but they didn't buy much during the trade deadline so it seems like they're conceding this uh the shortened season um the, the phillies after having shorted up their bullpen a little bit they did even more when adding david phelps um, adam talked about the mets um and the marlins but even the braves uh, getting tommy malone um they want to they're not necessarily confident that they're going to hold their division lead so I think that's going to be an exciting race to, to watch down the stretch. It's, uh, even if the Marlins drop drop down a little bit more, I think we're still seeing at least three teams being really competitive in the NL East. So one more uh, baseball topic we want to bring up, given that we are getting close-ish to the playoffs, funny as it may seem, um, is the, uh, the bubble prospect, uh, something somewhat similar to a uh, how the NBA and NHL have done it. Uh, baseball is looking to create a bubble for the playoffs. Um, I know the current proposal is to uh, put the AL in Southern California and the NL in Texas. Um, and Mike, I'll start with you. What do you think of this? I like it. I think that it's prudent. It's a safe thing because you see the success of the NHL and NBA. And on this show in the past, we've criticized Major League Baseball for not going into a bubble, even though with 30 teams it's very difficult so i was very happy to hear this news i like that they're doing it in warm weather cities i like that no team has home field advantage under the proposal and you hope that once the playoffs start you'll be able to have uninterrupted games which is why you're going to go into the bubble so when i heard this was happening it's one of the few things that i agree with rob manfred on because uh, his other decisions haven't been so good but Hopefully they they stay with it and this actually happens. So I'm I'm all for the bubble. Adam, what are your thoughts? Do you agree with Mike? It's a good idea. Yeah, I I think it's it's necessary. Um, you know, I think the one thing baseball cannot afford to have in its postseason is individual players testing positive. I mean, you can't. You're not going to be able to push postseason games back, and you certainly don't want to compromise the uh, competitive nature of the playoffs if one team has a breakout and they have to sit out. So I think this is really the only way it can be done. 
as far as the locations, I it, it makes sense. Uh, Texas, you have the domes. Uh, California, you've got the warm weather and hopefully not a lot of rain in October. I think the one um, complaint you might have is, let's say you're a Yankees fan. Your team is built around power and hitting home runs. You're going to be playing your games either at Dodger Stadium or, or even worse, uh, Petco Park. Or did they change the name of the stadium? I'm not sure. San Diego. No, it's um, still Petco. It's still Petco? Okay. Um, so I guess if you're a Yankee fan and you've built your ballpark around Yankee Stadium and you've got, you rely heavily on the long ball and you're forced to play all of your playoff games in, in pitcher-friendly parks, I guess you'd have a little bit of a, of a gripe with that. But really, I think everybody at this point has accepted that 2020 is an anomaly and there are many, many um, factors that are completely out of our control. So I think for the most part, baseball got it right. Um, and, you know, having the, the American League play in the National League stadiums and, and vice versa so that there's no home field advantage, I think, uh, is, is really the only way that this could be done. Indeed. Yeah, that's a great point on the on the ballparks. Um, but like you said, everything this year is just kind of its own thing. In a normal year, you'd never go for anything like this. But to me, the biggest question is how they're really going to do this from a date standpoint, because they did not build in any sort of a quarantine period would be my my way of putting it. I mean, that's the way I believe all the other leagues have done it, where they you know fly to a city. They basically stay in their hotel room for a week or two, really getting tested every day, making sure they're you know, in this impenetrable bubble situation. Whereas with baseball, I would assume, I think they've talked about even playing that first best of three round at the home park, and then they would go to the bubble. So maybe there's some way, since they're not going to have to travel for the most part, um, they can eliminate travel days. But um, we'll be interesting to see when they make this official and put out the full schedule, how they're going about it. And if it is a true bubble, or if it's kind of a, a bubble in name, just in terms of, you know, are they actually staying in a hotel that's connected to the uh, stadium and or are they allowed to kind of still go out the way that baseball is operating right now I think that level of detail will be interesting to, to just kind of analyze and and see but it, it makes sense I mean you know we've seen so many outbreaks we've had I don't know how many days but I feel like a week or less where we actually had every team playing on the field there's been one team or another luckily be, you know beyond that first Marlins outbreak it has been relatively, uh, you know, stable in terms of only affecting one team or members on a team. But even so, we see what happened with Houston and the A's this past weekend. It still results in what a four or five day kind of pause for those teams, which obviously in the playoffs you can't really do. So uh, curious to see how it all shakes out. But definitely, I think it's smart that they're going this route. Yeah, and I, I agree with most of it. Like obviously, the bubbles work great in the NHL and the NBA. So I, I certainly like the fact that the bubble itself is happening. Um, the fact that they are um, you know, doing it in opposite leagues to which the teams are playing so that nobody gets a home field advantage is good. The thing that you know, I, I guess sort of confused me is the locations they chose. They, they chose Southern California and Texas, which right now are like two of the biggest hotbeds for coronavirus in the country, say for maybe Florida. So you know, I'm curious as to what the rationale was. Maybe they did it because they need to have, um, you know, two parks per league just to get the games going. But you know, I, I was looking at all the dumb stadiums out there, and you know, I was looking particularly in Seattle and Milwaukee. Uh, both of those two places um, have very fairly low incidence rates, and I know that you know, Milwaukee in particular can get 
freezing in the winter, but I would think that the dome would cancel that out. Um, so, you know, I, I would have thought maybe they would have, you know, gone that route. I mean, they're supposed to end this in October. Well, they're supposed to. We'll see if it happens, um, as long as no, no other teams get a big outbreak. Um, but, you know, th- th- those are my thoughts is, you know, maybe maybe just try to bring it towards, you know, a, a lower incidence place, but I'm sure the MLB had their reasons, um, and maybe we'll, we'll hear more about them in the coming days. So I know we just spent a lot of time talking about baseball. We will move on to uh, another big sport, basketball. Um, only one of our teams is still in it, but nonetheless, the playoffs have been very exciting so far. Um, so first, want to look at the biggest takeaway from round one, which just ended in the West. It's been over for a while in the East. Um, and Adam, since you're the one team that is still in it, um, I'll start with you. Yeah, the Clippers um, had a more challenging series than I think was expected with Dallas, uh, particularly with with Porzingis out. But as far as the the key takeaway from round one to me, I think it was just the number of individual star performances that we saw. I mean, I know we spoke last week, which uh, did not uh, make the recording, um, about how high scoring all these games have been. I mean, you, you're seeing like the Raptors put up 150 points in a game, and it seems like every team is or every game has got a 40 point quarter. So I think that that's been a takeaway. But to me, like just the the, the stardom that we've seen from guys like Luka Doncic, Damian Lillard, Donovan Mitchell, and Jamal Murray. I mean, the two of them combined for four 50 point games in their seven game series. Obviously, LeBron and and what he's done with the Lakers. Um, you know, in, in their first round victory. So I think we, we've seen, and obviously, you know, the NBA is a star driven league and, and the playoffs will always bring out these, these great performances. But I, I, it feels like in this particular first round, there have just been some truly legendary performances and, and stat lines that, that we haven't seen before. Absolutely. I think I'd even commented that it's almost like street ball, you know, with, with no fans, nothing but the players on the court. So well, almost that, simplifies the game to an extent. That's why last night's game, I thought, really stood out. Game seven uh, between the Jazz and the Nuggets. The score was in the 80s. I mean, that was an old school game where you don't think of those teams as playing too much defense. I mean, maybe it was a bit more of, uh, you know, just not hitting their shots. But it was still a really exciting game, at least the last few minutes when I was watching. Uh, came down to that last bucket, and it was tough to see either team lose. I mean, Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell have really, you know, proven to be the next superstars in the league. And uh, you know, it was it was tough seeing Mitchell kind of, you know, keeled over at the end, or keels the wrong word, but you know, down on his knees. Uh, basically distraught um you know but he did say obviously after the game post game this is still a sport and there's much bigger issues going on so he definitely had his perspective in mind but um you know i think that that was just a great series and i i believe denver's now playing with the clippers mm-hmm. yep and yeah i i, I know we're going to talk about predictions and kind of comment moving forward but i think uh going to seven games with the jazz with the jazz i i'm not sh- and coming back from three one i don't know if they're gonna put up a fight at all against the clippers Adam, I, I once again agree with you in terms of the storyline. I think the emerging stars, to me, were by far the biggest storyline of round one, or I guess technically, I guess first round of the playoffs because the, you had the play-in tournament, but you had the battle between Jamal Murray and Donovan Mitchell, which was incredible. I mean, they are so evenly matched 
and the way that they competed against each other, I think elevated the play of the team around them too, because you saw the Nuggets and the Jazz both just compete really hard. And last night the Jazz were down, I think around 16 at half, came all the way back and it was a heck of a fourth quarter. So neither team deserved to lose. Both teams played great, but the Nuggets, I think overall going in were the higher seed and they by record in the regular season and track record probably were slightly stronger, but great series. And you also had, as you said, Luka Doncic just carried the Mavs. And I think he really stepped up. If, if one were to argue that Giannis was next in terms of the best player in the league, I think Doncic is now officially right there, or maybe even almost past him because he's 20 years old and putting up these numbers like we've never seen before. So, the league in terms of future stars just has a boatload of these young exciting players now where the Hardens LeBrons, Westbrooks might be stepping out of the way and and making way for some of these really young talented guys so the other thing that struck me was just how competitive a lot of these games have been. You had the game 7 last night between the, the Nuggets and the Jazz as now you have the Thunder and the Rockets and Chris Paul, you're talking about the young stars, but Chris Paul, no one was counting on the Thunder to do much this year, and he's really gotten them to a place where they're competing night in and night out amongst the best teams in the Western Conference, and it's currently 44-41 Thunder with 7 minutes 20 seconds to go in the second quarter, so if they pull this out, I'd be stunned. I was not expecting the the thunder to make it to the second round but they're a dangerous team right now and, and I, I think, I think uh, go ahead, no Ian. i was just going to add to you quickly I, I think if houston loses tonight they're going to clean house from d'antoni on uh the front office i think that team's going to really hit a reset point yeah and, and being the the resident clippers fan I, I i watch most of the games uh in their entirety and yeah Doncic is he's unbelievable and to think that he's 20 years old i mean he single-handedly kept them in most of those games and I think it was game four where he had the, the buzzer beater three which was a ridiculous shot but what's interesting to, to think about with a lot of these star players that I've mentioned outside of LeBron is that none of these guys were were number one overall picks and a lot of them were, were not even lottery picks mm-hmm. um, Doncic was number three but if you think about it uh, three teams passed on him. You had uh, Phoenix, who took DeAndre Ayton. Uh, the Kings took Marvin Bagley. And then uh, the Hawks took Doncic, but then traded him for Trey Young. So, I mean, three teams basically passed on Trey Young, uh, uh, passed on Doncic. Uh, you look at a guy like Donovan Mitchell, who was taken in the middle of the first round. I know the Knicks had a, had a crack at both Jamal Murray and Mitchell, uh, passed on both of them. Well, Murray actually was. Uh, one of the draft picks that the Knicks threw in in the Carmelo Anthony trade, so I'm sure that's a pick that they'd love to have back. Lillard, as we know, um, I think he he was late in the he was probably like number eight or something overall. So I think it just goes to show that look, you can be a team that's in the lottery every year and you might not get the number one pick, but there's a lot of talent out there, and a lot of it just really depends on. Your, your scouting ability for some of these international players, but also making sure that the talent you're bringing in, you know, you, you figure out a way to groom them and, and mesh with the guys that you have on the roster. But, you know, I guess, look, I don't know if, if the Knicks had a guy like Jamal Murray or, or 
Donovan Mitchell, would they be the same players that they are today? I don't know, but the pattern. Well, look the point at what they is, do with Porzingis. I mean, right. even if they're good, then they'll trade right. them away. The so. point is, you'd like to be in a position to find out. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about all these guys, you know, Damian Lillard, Jamal Murray, Donovan Mitchell, Luka Doncic, yeah, all three of their teams lost, but they've all got really bright futures. Um, I think all three of those teams are going to be really competitive next season. They've got a lot to look forward to, whereas, you know, I think you were talking about the Rockets. This might be their, their, their last chance for quite some time. And I know the other takeaway for me was, you know, the East and the West was – in round one was day at night. I mean, the East you had three sweeps, and then I think the Bucks won four to one over the um, uh, over the, the Magic. Magic. So, like those series were basically all done last week. Um, you know, my Sixers just embarrassed the entire city uh, by by going down like that to the Celtics. By the way, they they never been swept by them until now. So, uh, I'll have to throw that out there. I know the Raptors was sort of expected. Um, I think most of us picked them to sweep the. Uh, the Nets and, and, and the Heat sweeping the Pacers, that was that was pretty surprising, but we all called them winning. But, I mean, the West was, you know, save for maybe the Lakers-Blazers series, it was uber competitive, right? We have two Game 7s, and um, even the Mavs taking the Clippers to Game 6, you know, it was pretty impressive at the seventh seed. Um, so hopefully we'll see closer series um, in, in Round 2. I know we're going to talk about that next. Um, so far that hasn't been the case, but... Um, I'm sorry, actually, Damian Lillard was the sixth sixth pick overall, not eighth. Sorry, just quick correction. Yeah, none, nonetheless, it's you know it's still far from the top, and yeah. he's he's paid dividends for the team. So I want to also take... look at the Celtics getting Jason Tate. Sorry, the Celtics getting Jason Tatum. They traded down to get him. Sorry yep. to yeah, we passed him up. <laughs> we go with faults. Like what a joke. <laughs> so. One thing I want to do, I want to take a quick look at our uh, picks that we had made um, before the the playoffs started, and we'll uh, we have got him right in front of me. We'll see how Adam is doing. He has picked the winner so far in every one of them, save for maybe the Rockets. That that win is still TBD, but all seven series that are over, um, Adam has picked the winner. Not always the amount of games. Um, I think the Heat and, uh, and Celtics. End of their series much quicker than we expected, but he's got them all right. Um, I, of course, bet on my home team, the Sixers, and that cost me. Um, I did bet on the Jazz ultimately upsetting the Nuggets, and, you know, the Nuggets coming back from 3-1 to one, uh, seemed to have surprised a lot of folks. Um, and, and, in fact, I think that's the most any team has ever come back from there. There haven't been anyone coming back from 3-0 in NBA history. Um, Ian, what have you got? So... You actually had the same picks as me, save for the Thunder Rockets. And I know that one is still TBD, although the Thunder are up. And Mike, where are you at? Yep, and Mike also spot on for all the picks he's made so far. Now, looking at round two, um, does anyone want to make any revisions to their original picks? I think the biggest one for me is I was totally wrong, at least so far, on the Raptors. They are down 0-2. Boston is looking great. They, they're undefeated, right, the Celtics in the playoffs? Yep. yep. Um, they're really gelling at the right time. So not like I you know, uh, look to pick a Boston team, but I think I'm going to be wrong with that Raptors pick. I think what's, what's strange to me is 
you have Game 7 going on right now with the, with the Rockets and the Thunder, but you've got the Celtics and the Raptors have already played two games in the Eastern Conference semifinals. And I think part of that is because they they really just want to play the games as quickly as possible to get the players out of the bubble. Uh, but I think it's kind of weird. We're, we're, we're talking about predictions and, you know, we're, we're trying to preview the second round, but we're not quite out of the first round. So it's kind of, you know, again, another nuance of, of 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, as, as far as my revisions, I, I'm having, I'm enjoying watching the first round of games because I think, as you said, Mike, I, it looks pretty good. And if the Rockets hold on, then I'll have all of the teams correct. But in the Eastern Conference right now, I'm in trouble because I, I have the Bucks winning the whole thing. And since the Bucks have gotten into the bubble, they have not been the same team. They've, I was basing it off of their regular season performance and the expectation that. They were in the Eastern Finals last year, and I thought they'd be really hungry to get to the finals. But right now, I have not been impressed. And regardless of what you want to say about the Jimmy Butler foul call at the end of the game in Game 2, they're down 0-2, and they got to step it up or else the Heat are dangerous there. I I said before, and I'm going to say it again, that even though the Celtics are hot, I could regret saying this, but I said the winner of the heat Bucks series is going to go to the finals out of the East. So... No disrespect to the Celtics. They could very well win. But I think, as Ian said, the the Raptors, to me, are the weakest of the four left in the East right now. So I would expect the Celtics to now win that series. And we'll see what happens. The Bucks can still come back. So the Eastern Conference, there's some second guessing. The Western Conference, I still think you'll have the Clippers and Lakers at the end of the second round going to the conference finals. Yeah, I'm thinking in L.A., Conference finals is, I don't want to say all but certain, but it's pretty likely at this point. I definitely don't want to revise that. Um, now, I had picked the Heat to beat the Bucks. I, I picked them in seven, not in four. Um, I, I still don't think pick. they in four. But I'm going to hold out hope here. I told Avi, you know, these guys can't let me down because I bet against everybody when I, when I bet on the Heat. Um, so <laughs> I'm going to stick with that. Um, now, I, I, of course, was wrong about who the Raptors would play, but I, I said the Raptors would knock out the Sixers. Um, you know, I, I know the... The Celtics are up two games to none, but I'm going to cross my fingers and say that the Raptors are going to figure this out because I cannot pick a Boston team, and certainly not the Celtics for the life of me. I, I just can't. So I'm going to stick with my guns here, even if it means I, I end up being wrong once again. So I know something else to, to look at. I know I know what Adam had said um, about how it's pretty uneven right now. We're, we're you know very much within round two in the East, but... The West is still wrapping up round one, but, um, you know, what, what do we think might be the biggest headline coming out of round two? Uh, do we think there will be a significant upset that we don't foresee right now? Um, and Mike, I'll start with you this time. In terms of round two, I'm intrigued to see the Lakers series because I think that the it, the Lakers are the one seed, so correct me if I'm wrong. They'll get the winner of the Rockets and the Thunder, right? Yep, yep. yep. So if the Rockets win especially, I'm interested to see what happens because I, I think if the Rockets get out of the first round, Westbrook is sort of getting up to speed, and you have a bona fide star in Harden. So the Harden-LeBron matchup would be very intriguing to watch. I also, in the West, the Nuggets... I think are really good and they're deep and 
the Clippers are as well. So that, to me, is going to be a great matchup. But if we're talking one headline, I would say if the Rockets win, I'm excited about LeBron versus Harden. And then, you know, you have the secondary stars of Westbrook, Davis, and down the line for, for both those teams. So Lakers-Rockets, to me, would be a fun series to watch. Well, go, going into a clean round two, I would have agreed that the, the Clippers-Nuggets is probably the series to watch. I had picked the Clippers to win that in seven, so I'm going to stick with that. Uh, but now, knowing what we know now, I think everybody has to be on their seats about Milwaukee and Miami. The fact is the Bucks are now down 0-2. Uh, I wouldn't rule them out of it, but it's they certainly uh, have dug themselves quite a hole. And obviously in the bubble there's no home court advantage to go back to so you know you don't have any of that i still think um i still think the bucks can do it i it sounds like uh and we kind of saw this game unfold live uh, as we've been doing the podcast but it sounds like uh, milwaukee may have been cheated out of it overtime with a, with a makeup call there at the end so game two was very close and competitive um i see milwaukee Coming out very strong in Game Three. Look, they were they have been the best team, uh, Mike, as you mentioned, from start to finish in the regular season. So I would I would just find it really hard to believe that they are going to go out quietly here in the second round. So I, I I look for them to bounce back in Game Three, and uh, that that to me will be the series to watch uh, moving forward. You stole my thunder, Adam. I was going to go if if the Bucks get eliminated and Giannis, <laughs> you know, basically the next superstar is is out at this stage. That would be, I think, the headline of the whole bubble. I mean, everyone, maybe besides Mike Mandel, had the the Bucks for the most part getting to the conference finals. Uh, I think it's going to really come down to the supporting cast. I mean, Giannis has played well. I mean, twenty nine points tonight. Um, he, he fixed his free throw woes after game one, uh, went nine for 13 from the line. I think the supporting cast is where, you know, can Chris Middleton kind of be that number two player? Lopez, Bledsoe are kind of the next couple. I, I think Miami's just so well-rounded. And, and yes, the game tonight definitely could have gone either way. I will say, though, before that um, kind of foul at the buzzer, there was a, a three-point uh, foul call on Miami that, that looked to be very questionable, um, to say the least. There wasn't much contact at all. So it could have gone either way. Hopefully this series you know, ends up going six or seven, because if it does, it could end up being a classic. The, the teams are very closely matched up uh, against each other, and I think you know the Bucks obviously have that... I think extra, you know, they have big things in mind for this season. So um, we'll be curious to see where that goes. And I think, you know, even with the with the Lakers, I, I don't see either team putting up too much of a fight. I think the Lakers will win in, in five, maybe six. Um, Harden, you know, he's, he's really a regular season player. I don't think he's a big clutch playoff guy. I know tonight he only has, I think, seven points so far. Um, so either way, it'll be interesting. Um, but agree, all... LA uh, conference finals and then uh, hopefully rooting for Milwaukee to make this a series and uh, we will see where that goes. Yeah, and I, I guess I'll take this time since we all seem to agree that the, the biggest upset would be the Heat over the Bucks. I'll take this time to explain why I made that pick all the way back then. Um, th- th- there was a couple of reasons. First of which was that the, the Heat won the season series against the Bucks. Not only did they do that, but you know one of the games that they had won was in Milwaukee back when we were still playing um, with fans in opposing stadiums. Um, so that was one reason. And the, the other piece of it was the fact that, you know, the Bucks just haven't gotten it done in the playoffs yet with this current team. Um, I, I feel like, 
you know, the Heat, the Raptors, the Celtics, they, they all have, you know, recent successful playoff experience. But, you know, the Bucks they were the number one seed last year, too. I don't know if they were quite as good as, as they were this year, but they were the number one seed. And, you know, they, they choked against the Raptors. And, and I, I think most people didn't expect that. So, you know, that that's why I went with, with the Heat over the Bucks way back when. Um, you know, I, I think if the Celtics were to beat the Raptors, it would be considered a mild upset. Um, I'm still crossing my fingers that they won as a Sixers fan, but I, I feel like it wouldn't be quite as significant an upset, at least from the lens of the fans, as the Heat beating the Bucks. So I know we are just over the hour, so I am going to move on to final thoughts. Uh, I think we'll get a lot more into football next week. Um, since that season's starting soon, and definitely it's about time. I know we have some listeners that want to hear some football talk, so we'll we'll get there. We promise. Yep, you, you will hear it. You you will hear plenty of it. So, Ian, I will start with you. What's your final thought? Well, my final thought last week was football related, uh, kind of brought bringing attention to the season starting next week. Um, but uh, I think at this point, people are pretty aware of that. Um, so I, I'll cover off on a topic that we mentioned last week and didn't get a chance to talk about tonight, which was the NBA draft lottery, specifically as a Knicks fan. Uh, the Knicks, as you know, you probably could have predicted as they're moving back in the draft lottery. We all know it's a weak year this year, so not a super big deal. But I think just kind of is a good example of everything. Uh, I feel at a you know normal year to year basis with the Knicks, very little uh, potential moving forward. And they have a, a new, new regime, new uh, coach, new GM. Um, but beyond that, I don't. I don't think the talent level is uh, too exciting. I think they've whiffed on a number of draft picks. Obviously, traded Porzingis, traded way too many picks for aging players over the past few years, which I think Adam alluded to uh, a little bit earlier in the show. So um, the draft lottery. Uh, while I know uh, you know Wiles' team made out pretty well, and uh, you know there are a couple other winners. I think just uh, the Knicks falling back for I think. Uh, was maybe the fourth uh, time in the last six years or so. So just uh, we will see where that goes. Who knows even when the next NBA season will start. I know they've talked about pushing it back beyond December 1st, but as a Knicks fan, not saying there's much to look forward to whenever the 2021 season does begin. Okay, and Mike, I'll, uh, I'll go to you next. All right, so I have a three and one this week. First thing I want to talk about is, uh, and I was this was something that came up tonight. Unfortunately, Tom Seaver, the great Met pitcher, and also White Sox and a couple other teams passed away. And we were talking about throwing inside, and Steve Stone, the White Sox color commentator, had a great story about Bob Gibson, who is a legendary Cardinals pitcher, and Tom Seaver when he came to the National League in spring training. And in a spring training scrimmage or a game, I guess, between the Mets and Cardinals, uh, Bob Gibson threw to Tom Seaver and threw it right under his chin. He goes, welcome to the National League, kid. And then Tom Seaver, the next inning, Gibson was up, throws under his chin, same thing, a fastball, chin music, and says, it's nice to be here. So that is how in the 70s, people settled disputes on the field. And I, I love that story. And Tom Seaver actually is a Yankees connection too, Ian, not in a positive way for you, but for me <laughs> that on August 4th, 1985, he got his 300th win as a member of the White Sox. And it was at Yankee stadium in New York. So I thought that was a cool tidbit. Number two, 
Lucas Giolito, this is my original thought, um, he pitched a no-hitter last week. He's been one of the best pitchers in the American League over the last two years at this point, or however you want to call this season, a year and two months. But regardless, he had, I think, the worst ERA after being a top prospect. He had the worst ERA in the major leagues three years ago in the 2018 season. And he's just turned completely around. So it really speaks to persistence and going from the worst to figuring something out and getting your career back on track. So big congratulations. And finally, this is brief. We talked a little bit about this last week. The 3-0 Grand Slam Fernando Tatis hit where he had three balls, no strikes. Absolutely no problem with it. You're going to throw a pitch 3-0, let the guys hit. If you're going to cry about it, go home because there's no crying in baseball. So those are my three final thoughts. And Adam, uh, turn to you. My final thought is the world of hockey. The New York Islanders are game away from their first Eastern Conference final in 27 years. So really my entire life, as far as I can remember, um, you know, following sports. Um, look, the team has played really, really well. This is the best I've ever seen them play in my life. They've got the best defense in hockey. They've got two really hot goaltenders right now. Uh, they're getting scoring from all four lines. So I'm really excited. I, I feel very confident about their chances of knocking off Mike, your, your number one seeded flyers tomorrow night. Um, the Islanders had a chance last night. They, they lost in overtime four three, but the Islanders, uh, coming off of losses in the playoffs, they are three and zero with a twelve two goal differential. So I see them bouncing back tomorrow night. I look forward to the Eastern Conference Final prediction show on next week's podcast, and uh, hopefully a sign of uh, more good things to come for the Islanders. I'm going to have to disagree with that last point, Adam. I, I think uh, <laughs> I think the Flyers might be about to change their their history. Um, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm excited for the game. <laughs> um, so the, the other two things I'll bring up, uh, I, I want to recognize a couple of the passings in, uh, in basketball over the past week. Um, first, John Thompson, a legendary coach um, at Georgetown, and I think for most people the first black coach um, anyone had ever saw. Um, he was a great mentor to one of my personal heroes, Allen Iverson. Um, Iverson says, uh, you know, Thompson basically made him wouldn't have been the player he was, he was without him. Um, so I, I take my hat off to him. Rest in peace. Um, and also Cliff Robertson, uh, Cliff Robinson, who was far too young at only 53. Um, I, I feel like I even remember him playing, you know, not so long ago. I, I, I guess in an older age, the years, the years go by faster, but he, he played all the way up into the mid two thousands. Uh, and something else that he was somewhat known for is he is a cannabis entrepreneur and he was behind the efforts to legalize and, Oregon and Connecticut and nationwide, so uh, I'll say in his honor, let, let's let's get it done. <laughs> um, and, and we'll also say, uh, you know, he, he was not necessarily an athlete himself, but he did a hell of a job playing one, Chadwick Boseman on The Great Black Panther. Um, also came about playing Jackie Robinson in the movie 42. I think that was even mm-hmm. his acting debut at age 35, and, you know, he did a remarkable job there. So RIP to all those great men. Rest in power. And with that, uh, we will leave it here. We'll see you all next week. From Mike Mandel, Ian Gus, Mike Weil, and Adam Rosen, take it easy, guys.